Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Passport, was recorded live at Inside Out Gallery in Traverse City, Michigan in March 2016. In our first story, Leslie Tai tells of the time she lied her way into a wardrobe job for a film being shot in Mexico, but she wasn't the only one taking liberties with truth. So um, our, our uh, heading tonight is Passport, and the funny thing is that my story is sort of a border crossing story, but at the time I didn't actually have a passport. Um, I actually didn't get a passport until just a few years ago, and it actually has no stamps in it or anything yet. Um, at the time, it was about, the uh, year was 1998, and there was no, you didn't need a passport to go from California to Mexico. And um, that's where I went, the one time I've been out of the country, um, was to shoot a few scenes in a movie in Tijuana. So I have to set the story up a bit. I wasn't, I was maybe like a year out of college, maybe not even a year. I was trying to find work in the film business after four years of film school, um, a degree in screenwriting. Um, and the best I'd found so far was a production assistant job on the dating game. This was the uh, <laughs> Chuck Woolery, you know, uh, reboot of the dating game. And my job was to sit in a room with all the alternates. These are people who are paid to sit there all day and wait in case a scheduled contestant doesn't show up. They go on in their place. So we sat in a room for eight hours, watched TV, ate craft services, food, talked. That was my job, was to babysit them and make sure that they were there when they got called. And um, <clears throat> it was October at the time, and I was actually um, making a lot of Halloween costumes for friends. I really don't have a lot of experience in sewing, but or really knowledge, but I like to do it, and I'm kind of crafty, so I got, you know, just got kind of helped out my friends making like a full pleather Xena costume, or this time I think I was making like a pinstriped Jack Skellington you know, suit for a friend. And I figured since I'm sitting there all day anyway, not doing anything, I might as well be productive. So I brought these sewing projects and I'd be sewing as I was sitting there talking to the alternates. And this must have been noted by some of the other crew members because that week, a weekend, I got a phone call from one of the production coordinator manager guys on the dating game. And he said, so I noticed you've been sewing costumes. So is that what you do? Like, are you into costumes? we're shooting this independent film that I'm working on and we need a costumer. And I said, sure, yes, I have lots of experience in costumes and wardrobe. So this is where I first realized, okay, I got to get somewhere, right? So I'm just going to have to fake it. I'm going to have to pretend like I know what I'm doing. I totally lied. No idea. Um, it, was a, it was a really low-budget independent film and um, it started shooting after the dating game season ended. Um, the film was called Two Coyotes, and it was about the uh, Latino mafia and um, took place all over East L.A. about, like, a young, ambitious, you know, gangster who wants to, like, make his way up the ladder. And we were pretty sure by the middle of the, um, of the whole production, the crew was pretty sure that this was actually funded by the Latino mafia because it was pretty sketchy, things that were happening. Our, uh, our biggest star was Joe Estevez. And if you don't know who that is, you do know Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen, his nephews, and his brother Martin Sheen. So Joe Estevez, he has like Martin Sheen's exact voice, but he's, he's a little bit rounder. 
And um, he does have 273 credits on his IMDb page. Um, films like Attack of the 30-Foot Chola, um, <laughs> Killer Zombies, Motorcycle Cheerleading Mamas, Baby Ghost, and perhaps the most well-known is a film called Soul Taker. So he was our biggest name star. And um, we started shooting, and I tried my best to look like I knew what I was doing. You know, I bought, like, this retractable, like, um, uh, bar thing for hanging up clothes that I put in my, um, what was that, Dad, like, 89 Oldsmobile Cutlass Sierra that I had at the time. Like, put in the back so I could put, you know, clothes on it. I had Polaroid camera so I could keep track. You know, we weren't shooting in order, so I had to make sure that we had the outfit, you know, on day one that we were also going to need on day 15. And since it was low budget... You know, a lot of the actors were just pulling things from their closet, which caused problems when, like, the one guy who had to wear this lime green collared shirt forgot it at the dry, or took it to the dry cleaners on a day when we needed it. So I'm, like, in East L.A. trying to find a lime green collared shirt in, like, the garment district, um, which was interesting. Um, or there was, uh, oh, I had to find, you know, two police badges, authentic-looking Los Angeles police badges. Yeah, no, you can't, I have no money and that, like, that's hard to find as it is in, you know, not really legal places. So um, things like that. Um, there was the, the suit I had to buy for the wedding scene from Macy's. So I basically, like, tucked up the price tag and returned it afterwards <laughs> so I could get my $300 back, you know. My job was, like, 1000 bucks. I was getting paid for this. So, uh, and, uh, and then my favorite was... Uh, there was the, uh, the big, silent, violent thug guy named Chupacabra. And uh, I put on him this leather vest, black leather vest that had this um, brown leather trim that was actually my vest. It was actually a woman's vest that I wore, but I put it on him and it looked pretty good. I was like, yeah. So I was, here I am. I'm pretending, like, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm, like, totally worried any second I'm going to be found out that I, like, totally don't know what I'm doing. But I'm just, I'm just going. I'm just faking it. Um, so the whole shooting was going to culminate a few days in Tijuana. Um, the protagonist was supposed to go down and meet some of the cartel, and he ends up falling in love with this woman and deciding to bring her up to America and marry her. And So the crew all heads down. We all carpool down across the border, no problem. Um, we get down there uh, and the, right around dinner time, and the producers take us to this, like, out-of-the-way restaurant. It's, like, just this big table just full of lobsters and, like, buckets of beer and margaritas. It was awesome. We had a great time. And uh, go to the motel, go to bed, wake up the next morning, and we're waiting to shoot. We're waiting. We're waiting. Hours go by. We're like, what's going on? When are we going to start shooting? And we come to find out that um, the company didn't have the permits to bring the equipment over the border. Whatever, I don't know what, I mean, this is, this is guerrilla type shooting. So a lot of places in LA when we were shooting, we didn't have permits. We were always like looking over our shoulders to see if the police were going to stop us in the middle of a take. So, um, so the producers are basically trying to pay off someone at the border to get this, all this camera equipment and film and all this stuff across the border to, to shoot. So we wait a little bit longer, and finally, the, it shows up. Yay, they did it. However they did it, I don't want to know how. Um, but they get this uh, equipment over. And we go and we shoot our couple of scenes and we go and we have another like huge dinner and margaritas and tequila and all this stuff. And uh, the next day we're supposed to shoot the very last scene, which is in the script, 
a border crossing scene where the two actors, the protagonist and this girl, cross the border from Mexico to America and have you know, a little conversation dialogue with the border guard. Yeah, so they're over there, like the, the cameraman and the director and the sound guy, and they're talking and talking, like, what's going on? Yeah, they don't have any kind of permit to do this. Like, they don't, they don't have permission, but they want to do it. So they decide that the two actors are going to drive in the car, the camera's going to be in a van right next to it with the camera going and shooting, like hoping that they're like along, you know, this is through the actual border. And uh, the sound guy is going to lie on the floor of the back seat with a blanket over him <laughs> to go through, and they're going to try to record and, cut and record this scene of them actually talking to the border guard completely illegally. I mean, we're all American citizens, so we can get across, no problem, but uh, so they do this. Um, and this is that moment uh, when I finally realized and I finally like gave myself a break. I'm like, okay, none of them know what they're doing. <laughs> they're all faking it, right? They're all just pretending like they know what they're doing. I mean, probably the people that had the most experience in their actual job were probably the grips. Like, they were probably the ones that actually really knew what they were doing, and everybody else was totally making it up. So they got the scene. Nothing happened. Sorry, there was no crazy, you know, they didn't get caught. They actually got the scene. It obviously didn't work out because if you watch the film, it's like a few shots of cars, and you can kind of see through a window them talking to the border, you know, guard. But it's not really very exciting, and it ended up being something they really couldn't cut as, like, a pivotal scene. But they finished the film. Um... It didn't really go anywhere. It finally did get released on DVD. I actually found it, believe it or not, at the family video at Chum's Corners <laughs> when I moved here. I hadn't seen it yet, and I found it, and I have it now. It's very exciting. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, I didn't really see anybody from the film after that. You know, it, it was pretty much over. But, but I can tell you that ever since... Um, whether it was getting a job as an agent for studio teachers, which I did, or being a kid wrangler on a photo shoot, which I did, um, or working as an assistant to the personal assistant of David Spade, secretly, he had no idea that I was the one buying his groceries and sitting in his house waiting for the cable guy. Whatever the job that was placed before me, I got really good at faking it. Thanks. In the next story, Marina Call learns how to be a tour guide in Italy in a bit of baptism by fire. Rome, Italy, year 2000. There I was with my Vespa cruising around. Been living there a couple years had a good job with the internet company, and then thought, okay, I have this great job, and you know, I have tons of vacation, and the hours are very little during the week, so I thought, why don't I get another job? I'd seen this flyer that said, travel, great trips, art, free food, so I thought, okay, I'll apply. It was to be a tour director. All you had to do is take these high school students around. You got to see all this stuff easy enough. 
I applied, I speak several languages, have two passports, had studied art history, I thought, easy. And it was. A week later, they called me and they said, Marina, you have the job. Okay. I received a travel itinerary for um, 10 days. Rome, Florence, and Venice. I confirmed everything. I'm super organized, restaurants, hotels. And on my day, I arrive at the Fiumicino Airport with my sign that says, Mr. Clausen. There comes a man, plump, balding, mid-40s, and he says, hi, I'm Randy Clausen. And I said, hello, I'm Marina, your tour director. How does this work? Randy was the group leader. So he was in charge of this students, which were high school students. He was in charge of them to be well-behaved, and I was in charge of the itineraries. There was Randy, two other teachers, and in this group of 40 <laughs> from Iowa, <laughs> who have never left the States, all the rest were 16-year-olds, okay? First night goes great. I tell the group at the hotel, tonight we're going to have pasta bolognese, insalata, rosette, dolci. They are so excited. It, all it was was pasta with meat sauce, salad, and some dessert and rolls. But with my accent, it sounds fancy. The days are going well, Rome is my city, but did I mention it's legal to drink at 16 in Italy? <laughs> right. So every night, the I can't sleep. They, the kids are partying. I find the boys in the girls' rooms. I see them smoking in the balconies. Randy's supposed to be taking care of this, but like clockwork, after dinner, he disappears with those teachers, and they never show up until the next morning with bloodshot eyes. <laughs> so Rome is done. It's time to go to Florence. I am stressed out. I'm delirious. 7 AM, I go, guys, it's going to be 7 AM tomorrow. In the morning, no one's around. I knock on all the doors, and I say, guys, it's time to go. We're going to be late for the bus. Let's do this. The kids cruise out of their doors in pajamas to the breakfast room, as only Americans would. <laughs> and they say, this breakfast sucks. I'm done with these rolls. I hate this. And I say, look, Italians eat a light breakfast, big lunch, and light dinner. That's how they stay healthy and slim. And remember, they'd been asking me for McDonald's all these days. So I say, enough. We get him in the bus. As I'm going to the bus, I meet Giuseppe, our bus driver. Giuseppe is tall, very tall for an Italian with white, thick hair. And from his nose, I can tell he's from Naples. Giuseppe is like, andiamo, Marina, andiamo. We're already late. I say, show me your passports. I want to see everyone's passports. They go, yeah, we have them. I said, no, show me your passport. They take them out, I count 39 passports. I look around, there's straw-haired Steve, 
who always looks stoned. Where's your passport? He shuffles around, he can't find it. And after going back and forth into the hotel, he finds it was in the crack of his bed. We arrive to Florence, we are late. We meet our tour guide and she says, I'm sorry, um, you've missed your time slot. We're there to see Michelangelo's David. It's gonna be another hour. The group starts getting restless. It is early in the day, but the Italian sun is hot. It's hot in the piazza, we're sitting in the cobblestones. Some of the kids say, oh, I don't wanna see this. Who cares about this David? <laughs> and, and I say, okay, um, no, let's all see it. Uh, they're like, really, we're over it. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to make the tour happy, you know? And um, I, I tried to find Randy, you know, he's been MIA, but I said, can you, you know, go with the group? And, and he does, he, he says, okay, so things were looking up. I forgot to tell you that on the first day, I had told him that it was my first tour. And the manual had said, do not tell your group that it is your first tour. So, he takes a group and we do go on the tour. I go to call the restaurant while they're on tour and the restaurant says, no, if you're not here in the next five minutes, your reservation is canceled. What was I gonna do with these 40 people? Absolutely not, they're like, right now. We get the group together, they meet after separating and I have to tell the group. I'm sorry, our reservation today, I forgot to tell you, I lied to them. Res lunch is not included today, so you guys are on your own. Randy starts yelling at me in front of the whole group. He is so mean to me and he says, you're so unorganized, and he just starts just being really mean. So I leave the group, we meet up at four, and I go to Stazione Piazza, which is right by the train stations. It's this green area in the Florence train station area. I start crying. I'm feeling exhausted from not sleeping. I'm not supposed to be taking care of these kids and they're just not helping at all. I call my brother, ring, ring. Hey, I tell him all about the disaster. I thought it was so organized. I am so good at this, but things are falling apart. And he says, don't worry, but do you know it's seven o'clock in California? And I'm like, oh, Jaime, I'm so sorry. I'm the older sister. I'm supposed to be organized. I have to keep it together. He has to look up to me and I'm just feeling really bad. He says, te quiero Marina, no te preocupes. And I tell him I love him back. The days go on like this, and we go through Florence and Venice. With all this, I am waiting for the last night. As a tour director, I have a company that's really cheap. They expect the group to pay for our wages, kind of like waiters. So they had told me, with a group of 40, you should be expecting about $500, that's how it works. So I thought, okay, great. 
I go through this trip with Giuseppe. He is just my rock during all this last night of the trip. We go, I sit with Giuseppe, I have my envelope, and I open it up. I count. $120. Giuseppe says, lui te ha proprio fregato, which is he totally screwed you over. Giuseppe is a expert. He's Napolitano and he knows how these things go. What do I do? This is my wage for this nightmare trip of no sleep. I go to Randy when the kids are away and I say, Randy, where's my money? I, I know that there was more money here. No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, th there is no money. I leave them the next day at the Venice airport and call my brother and say, hi, man, I am never doing these groups again. Two weeks later, <laughs> the tour company calls me and says, Marina, you've had amazing reviews. Would you like to new do another tour? Well, I'm a yes person, so I say yes. I end up going on lots of travels with Giuseppe. He teaches me how to make money in creative ways. <laughs> and I learn. I go on probably 40 tour trips. Spain, Greece, Italy, and France. A happy group is a group that needs to make few decisions and are well-fed sheep. I was happy to be their shepherd. <laughs> Next, Steve Clark and his wife combined their different traveling styles to get lost and then found in Beijing. So in front of me is this like stone wall with a human-sized gate. And behind me is a crowd of hundreds of people bustling about in their Saturday night business with signs and language I can't understand and music that's very unfamiliar to me. And by my side is my wife, Jackie, who is looking at me very anxiously because we are at a decision-making point. And I say to her, you know, if we walk through this gate, I don't know which street we're on on this map anymore. And that is how we wound up getting lost in Beijing. <laughs> so Beijing has a population of 21 million people, over 21 million people. To give you a little comparison, uh, New York City has 8.5 million people. And that doesn't count all the people who are there from out of town. That's just the people who lived and worked there. That's not the tourist and everything. So um, let's just put a little mental picture in our mind. Let's picture, let's say, uh, the Cherry Festival. Okay, Cherry Festival, 4th of July. You got people, lights, sounds, families having fun. Now, does everyone have that in their mind? Now, everywhere you picture one person, picture 10 people. And that gives you a little bit about Beijing. And uh, did I mention I don't 
really do well with crowds. <laughs> so, um, so we're about to uh, go. She asked me, you know, you know, Jackie's looking at me. There's this whole crowd behind me. I do not want to walk through that again. And we hear violin music cutting through on the other side of the gate. So I'm like, you know, what the heck? Let's go through. We're on an adventure together. That's Jackie and I. That's my wife, Jackie. We, we rock on vacation. We are just awesome at traveling together. There's two basic types of travelers, and I'll, that's an oversimplification, but um, I like to plan everything out. I like to know we're going to wake up maybe around... 8.30, 10 o'clock, we'll go to this museum, we'll eat this lunch at this place. I have the whole day in my mind. Who's like that kind of vacationer? That is the minority. Okay, I guess I am in the minority as well. Uh, Jackie, my wife, she's, she'll, she'll go along with that, but she also just wants to kind of go with the flow a little bit. She wants to relax on vacation. Relax? There's all this stuff to see. What do you mean relax? We can sleep when we're home. We're in China, for crying out loud. So, but she just kind of wants to go on, like, adventures uh, together. So that's kind of how we wound up. Um, we're all, like, on our own out on our first day in Beijing. We were over there, like, visiting some friends. So the first couple of days was in the suburbs of Shanghai. They sort of showed us the ropes. We got familiar with the terrain. And then they sent us on an overnight train from Shanghai to Beijing. And we wake up in the morning to this family on the train. We're sharing a car with them. And they're, like, have their baby. And the baby plays there. Has a little toy. You push a button. It goes, do, 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 do. And I'm like, oh, isn't that nice? It's a small world. The kids are the same everywhere. They're like going up to Beijing to visit grandma. Grandma hasn't seen the new baby. And I was like, oh, that's, that's you know, people are just alike all over the planet. Um, that went south very quickly because, like this anxiety story early, I'm like, this is great. We're in a new city, but we have to go to the Forbidden City. And it kind of, I think it closes at like four or five, and it's a huge place, so we need to get over there. And, but I'm trying not to rush, I'm trying to stay chill, and we basically wind up, uh, long story short, walking through Tiananmen Square, we get to the Forbidden City. It is August, it is, uh, I mentioned the 21 million people, obviously all 21 million people weren't right here, but um, it's August, and Ve Forbidden City in Beijing is a big tourist destination, it is over 100 degrees, and this place is made of stone. And so it is just like radiating heat. And how you see the Forbidden City is, you know, there's these very ornate buildings, but you don't walk in them because they want to preserve the art and architecture inside. There's this door, and you have to basically, a crowd is around the door, looking in. There's no line. You have to kind of just wedge your way up to the front and then, like, look in and admire all the beautiful art and then just, like, wedge your way out. So this gets miserable very quickly. And we're like, well, here it says on the map at the end there's a garden, this garden. Let's go down to the garden. There'll be trees there. It'll be very chill. So we go down to the garden, and it's like we, we look out over the garden and again, I'm seeing one person, imagine like 10 people everywhere where there, you could crowd surf across this garden. And I'm looking at, I'm like, children are like climbing on 
ancient statues, and there's like a whole family of people passed out over here, and then there's these kids crying, and mom's like digging in her purse, like trying to find food for them. It was a lot like Disney World, I guess, like Disney World in summer. And uh, so we're like, well, this has got to go quickly. So all this while, we've been walking kind of away from the hotel, and I'm aware of where we are on the map, and we find this wonderful park and it's open, and it's free, and we kind of like get rid of all the crowd in our mind, and we wander north, and uh, won't go into that, but it was a very lovely experience. It was like uh, uh, Central Park, again, for the New York metaphor, except for twice as big and just gorgeous, and we just keep wandering, and now Jackie's like adventurous spirit has sort of like taken over. The plan is gone. The Forbidden City was the plan, but now that it's gone, now we're in this park. Isn't that lovely? And oh, here's this lagoon, and oh, here's this temple, and oh, here's this interesting little boat, and we just keep wandering farther and farther until we wind up in this like restaurant district, and uh, Beijing prices are like Manhattan prices. Like we were used to everything being cheap, before now that we're in this town, we're like, oh, we can't handle, it. we can't pay for that. That's too expensive, and every restaurant is all very crowded. So we're like, well, let's check the next one. Let's check the next one. And we get to this stone gate, and there's the crowd behind us, and we're like, oh, I don't want to go through all that again. So we decide to press on. Did I mention there's a? So we get to that to that moment, and uh, and this violin music is playing, and we press on, and we go through. Now we're in this like nightclub district. There's a row of storefronts. Every single one of them is a bar. Every one of them. And they all have a live band. And all the live bands, they're dressed to the nines. They're like ready to rock. Except for Chinese pop music. This is a little sidebar. It's like punk rock and Led Zeppelin and metal. Like none of that ever happened. It was just like, you know, like Carpenters and Beach Boys kind of evolved into modern rock without the like edge. There was just no edge. So we go through, you know, there's so this, this pop music playing and it's crowded and I'm starting to panic, but I am trying not to panic because we're on vacation and I want to be like fun and I want to have a good time and, you know, we start to panic. And I'm like, well, let's just keep walking. Let's just keep walking. And we're getting farther and farther from the hotel this whole time. And we walk and we walk. And the bars and restaurants slow down. And it starts to get a little dark. And the other people are now kind of gone. And we're like the basically only people around here. And we're kind of in this residential area. What's going on? So we see this rickshaw driver. We go up to the rickshaw driver. We show him on the map. You know, we think we're over here. We're trying to get here. And he just gives us this look like, oh, no. <laughs> and we're like, oh, okay. Let's just turn around. So we turn around. We sit on a bench. And uh, we're kind of feeling a little defeated. And then Jackie gets the wonderful idea of like, well, maybe we don't need to go back because we cannot walk back through that crowd. It was like hell. It was like neon Chinese hell. Uh, for someone who doesn't like crowds, other people might have really enjoyed it. Uh, so um, at that time, as we're sitting there defeated, thinking of like what we should do, this guy drives by on a motorized rickshaw. And I know he didn't say this, but I felt like he said, hey, you need some help? <laughs> like, and just very clearly. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know what, we do. So we go up there, and we 
you know, show him the map, and he gives us that same look. Oh, you can't go there. And I'm like, please, please, you see the situation here? We're really lost. And he's like, mm, writes down 50 yuan. People have told us never pay more than 15, 20 yuan tops for a rickshaw ride. So, uh, so I'm like, either he's ripping us off or we're asking a lot of him. Uh, turned out to be the latter. So here's what happens. We're like, fine, 50, let's do it. Get us home. So we hop on this, like, motorized rickshaw. And on the back of it, you know, there's two seats and, like, a little aluminum bars and, like, an awning. And he just takes off down the dark street that uh, goes down the dark street that we... um, had been uh, rushing down before, and there's all these, like, sights and smells, and I see this, like, Soviet-era shower, like, bunker kind of thing, and we're out in the main traffic, and all of a sudden, it just stops. Now, where I thought I knew where we were before on the map, now I really don't know, and, uh, but we're over a highway, and I'm like, oh, God, now we're going to be stranded in the middle of uh, Beijing. He takes off, takes the rickshaw onto the highway. <laughs> I think we're going to die at this point. We're on the side. And I'm like, you've heard all these stories. I'm that guy. We're those people. We're going to die in Beijing. He goes up the next up ramp, and all of a sudden, we're just like at the train station. Everyone is all smiles, all hugs. He saved our butts, and he knows it. Um, we pay the man. We get on the train, and the rest of the night was uneventful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Ben Whiting went to Switzerland to search for a mentor magician in this next story. Indeed, he found him and learned a lot, including how to not cut off his finger during a performance. My name is Ben Whiting, and I'm a full-time magician. Yep, that's the truth of it. They say behind every successful magician, there's a very surprised (laughs) mother-in-law. And when my mother-in-law asked me the first time I met her, why did you get into magic? How did you get into magic? I knew these were great questions. And I'll tell you how most guys get into magic very badly. They're awful. They're downright annoying. Some of you probably know people who are into magic. And the reason I was so bad when I was young was because I thought great magic was all about secrets in props. There was no need for audience connection or a personality if you had good secrets and good props. So I would stuff my pockets with any trick I could find. And everywhere I went, it looked like I was smuggling walnuts into that place because every pocket I had was bulging with various paraphernalia, things called swami tips or funkin' rings or sponge balls, fabulous three-ball gimmicks, or a glorpy, which objectively does sound like a to-do list off of Urban Dictionary, but it is common nomenclature amongst magicians. Uh, And why did I do this? Because... 
I was so insecure. I was painfully shy, and I did not know how to interact in social situations. And instead of asking a cute girl anything, I found it better to pull out my totally ordinary, everyday, common mystic staff of life with six different colored jewels on each side, not realizing how awkward it was for a 19-year-old of any gender to be talking about gems. And this is the mindset in which we begin my story tonight. I was 19, awkward, clueless, let's just be honest, and I realized that there's something wrong with my magic. And instead of looking at myself or thinking about maybe how could I connect with an audience, I thought maybe I should just put on a full blown out show. That's what I need. A good show. Start to finish Mystic Staffs of Life. So I, yes, color, oh, it was bad. Color changing ropes, the whole nine yards. I owned it all. The, so I started to attend magic lectures. These exist. They really do. I went to a local magic shop, and he was like, yes, here's the address of the lecture. This next one coming up is all about street magic. And I was so excited because this was the time in my life when David Blaine was very popular. And I thought, oh, wow, I might actually learn how to approach strangers on the sidewalk and surprise them with magic. Again, totally clueless as to the social awkwardness of the situation when you don't have a camera crew. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm like, where is this lecture going to take place? This is going to be the creme de la creme of the magic world. There's going to be wood paneling and bookshelves filled with old historic texts, everything smelling like, like mahogany. And I go to the address, and I realize it's in the back of a Denny's. but I marched forward. Again, completely equipped with my walnuts because I had gotten the newest things online. I was ready to show off to other magicians that were going to be there. So I walk in and I case the room for my victims. And out of everyone there, most people were kind of like me. There was a lot of walnuts in the house. But there was one man in the corner. And he looked different. He had on kind of a goofy costume, like a bowler hat and a baggy suit, and I think he looks goofy, and I'm the magician with walnuts. But in front of him, he only had the basics. He had cards, a couple coins, a magic wand. And I assumed he was a beginner, because I threw my magic wand away when I was seven. So I saunter up to him and go, would you like to see a card trick? This was one of my pickup lines at the time. <laughs> For men or women, it doesn't matter. But... He looks at me and goes, well, can you do it with my deck of cards? And I said, no. <laughs> but I can do it with my totally ordinary deck of cards that you've never seen anywhere. <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes, well, if that's the case, I am going to need a cigarette. And then he pulled out a cigarette, and he was getting ready to light it when a waitress came over and said, sir, I'm so sorry, uh, you're not allowed to smoke in here. And he goes, well, I wasn't going to smoke this like most people smoke it. And she goes, what? He goes, I was going to smoke it magically. And she goes, what in the world do you mean? She's like, well, if a magician is smoking a cigarette, he doesn't need to put it in his mouth. It just happens. 
And, no, no, no. And at that moment, my mind was blown. I, and then that guy stood up and looked at the entire room and said, guys, it is the job of the magician to make the difficult look easy and make the easy look beautiful. And then he started giving the lecture because he was the lecturer that night. The guy I was going to impress with my totally ordinary deck of cards like no one has ever seen before. And he went on and he kept performing and talking about how good magic should always be simple and it should connect with an audience and everything he did was absolutely amazing. And at the end of the lecture, I just went up to him and I said, how in the world can I learn more from you? And he said, well, you know, I'd be happy to teach you, but when I'm done with this lecture tour in the States, I'm going back to Europe. I live in Zurich, Switzerland. And as dumb luck would have it, that next semester I was studying abroad in Vienna, Austria. I had class Monday through Thursday, so Wednesday night I would pack that backpack, and right after class I got on the train and I went to Zurich to find him. The People are often amazed by this, but it's actually not that impressive. I just went to a magic shop and asked, and there he was. <laughs> but he looks at me and goes, holy hell, you found me. And I was like, yeah, I did. And he's like, all right, well, let's learn street magic. And I should point out at this point, this is not David Blaine's street magic. This is busking. This man would get on a sidewalk, build a crowd, do a show, and ask for tips. And this is how he made his living. He raised a family, paid his insurance, had a house, a car, all off of doing that. Anytime he got a gig somewhere else, it was always from someone that saw him performing on a sidewalk. And this is what we did. Every weekend, we would go to some new city, generally ones that didn't speak English, and I would watch him perform. I would see him connect with these audiences, doing amazing things and learning everything he did the exact way he did it all over. We went to Amsterdam, to Munich, to Barcelona, and finally, Rome, where it was time for my first show. So I stood on the sidewalk, and nothing happened. I didn't get a crowd, and I started saying the lines. I'd heard him say, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben. Welcome to my show. A show guaranteed to amaze, amuse, confound, confuse. A show seen all across the civilized world and in some parts of the United States. <laughs> it's a lot funnier when you're in Europe. <laughs> and then finally, after half a day of toiling and sweating, I had four or five people in front of me. The biggest crowd I had ever seen. And the lines worked, and it was time to do my first trick, the cut and restored rope. And I took out the rope that was completely ordinary because I was a simple guy now. I took out the scissors. I handed them out. They were examined, took them back. I cut the rope in the middle, and I put it back together. And then I did it again. Then I let someone else cut the rope. And as I'm doing this, I'm saying all the lines. Everything's coming out just right. And I look down, and I notice that the rope is, is changing color. But this was not my gimmicked color-changing rope like I used to carry in my pocket. This was a normal rope, and yet it looked surprisingly red. And I realized that in my adrenaline rush of having this 
ginormous crowd of four people, I had somehow cut the side of my first finger, which was now bleeding down the rope and dripping. But what do I do? I hadn't thought of this situation. So I just kept performing and cutting the rope and asking for volunteers. And then the only thing more horrific than the face of the situation was the face of the people watching me, <laughs> not knowing, is this a magic show? Is this a freak show? Is this some weird circus mix of genres that I did? And they, at the end of the show, when I asked them for tips, they didn't so much thank me with their money as they kind of threw change at me just so the situation would be over. And, and I was broken. I looked at Jim and said, Jim, in my mindset, still then, because I hadn't quite let go, I was like, Jim, do you think... They know how I put the rope back together. <laughs> and he said, Ben, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. People don't care about the secrets. They know we have them. There's no such thing as a magician. And I sighed. And he said, but Ben, they also know that Dorothy is really Judy Garland. The Mona Lisa is just a piece of canvas with some paint slapped on it. Does that make those things any less magical or artistic? No. That's because magic is in the connection. It's not in the deception. People know Dorothy and Judy are the same person, that it's not real. But for that brief moment in time in the theater, they want to. Just like they know magic isn't real, but some people actually want to believe in it. So that's where maybe you should be putting your focus not the secrets. And once you realize that if you can connect with that audience and love them and thank them with every single movement and thing that you do, maybe you won't have to carry around so many walnuts. <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening to me. this next story, James Berg is stuck in a loathsome job with a workforce of lost souls in Paris and just trying to get paid. I was 25 years old and I was traveling through France and I met a girl. Yes, it was nice. <laughs> And she was studying and living at home with her family, and I sort of ended up there, too. Um, and I was there for about three months, and finally I said, I can't keep staying here. And so, uh, so we found an apartment. And, um, you know, when you're young, you can just sort of kind of wander around and find yourself, and it's pretty great. We had traveler's checks that I'd brought, and it was all the money that we had, and we kept it under the mattress. And we called it our savings account. And about every week or so, I'd lift the mattress and pull a few bills out. I put up signs on telephone poles that said, speak English with my first name and her mother's mobile telephone number. Um, and I had these lunches with these really creepy dudes. But eventually, I connected with a school. <laughs> I don't want to get, that's a whole other story. A school where they only hired people and paid under the table. So it was just what I was looking for. I didn't have any working papers. I didn't speak a word of French at the time. But this was perfect. And they had English language lessons. And what they specialized was on lessons for people to take 
uh, test preparation for getting into American universities. And they said, we can help you learn, you know, achieve your American dream. And they had stars and stripes everywhere. Um, and they, they produced their own textbooks. They had an editor. They had these college fairs all over the world in places like Caracas and Seoul and Milan and Luxembourg. And it was all very impressive. The owner was a French man. He was about 30 years old. Uh, and he just, he had this sort of air of somebody who was clearly very rich. He just kind of wandered around. And he, anything that he would ask me and I would, whatever I said, he would always say, yes, 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 I know all of that. Tell me more. And, it was just clearly like it was kind of, he was curious but dismissive at the same time. <laughs> and even though it was very impressive what he was doing, he clearly had not yet made it because it was a mess and he was a mess. Um, he was from Neuilly, which is the very rich area of Paris. Uh, he had this very expensive clothes that were stained and wrinkled. Somebody told me he was sleeping in the office under his desk he had a wife and two kids, but they were estranged, and he'd be on the phone yelling with her. And it was very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> Everybody there was from all over the world. They were all very bright people, and they were all my age in their 20s. Um, and he was very fascinating. Uh, he was, he was, he was going to take over the world, and everything he was going to do was going to be big and great, and it was going to be huge. He was like Donald Trump but less successful. I mean, he clearly was not going to make it. Uh, but there was work available, and I was going to teach classes and make a website. So I was excited. Um, and people warned me, you know, don't trust him. He told me he had a PhD from Harvard University. Um, and everybody said, no, that's not true. <laughs> um, a month came by. They only get paid once a month in Europe. And so at the end of the month, I had all these hours that I'd logged, and I was supposed to keep track. and. He said, no, 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 I, I will not pay you by the hour. And then he just kind of walked away. And I was at my desk, and I thought, well, what do I do? And he came right back, and he had this missing button in his shirt, and he just started scratching his chest. And he said, I'm very happy that you're here. And then he walked away again. And for some reason, I felt guilty. There was something about him that made you feel guilty about asking him for money. Um, but I waited, and I didn't know what to do. because I, I finally put the invoice on his desk, and he came right back, and he was furious. He had this envelope, and he kind of threw it on my desk, and he stormed off. And in the envelope was cash, and it was exactly half the amount of the invoice. <laughs> There's a term for this, by the way. It's called wage theft. And I'm sure it's illegal, but I was illegal, so I, there's nothing I could say. And by this point, I understood what was going on. We all talked a lot. He owed everybody money, and it was varying amounts, and it just basically depended on how much of a pushover you were. And we heard him on the phone talking to vendors, and he said, no, 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 I paid you. You know, you are mistaken. And we knew it was a lie. Uh, the landlord would come in, and the landlord had no respect for him. The landlord would speak English on our behalf. Imagine this French man, ha, ha, ha. You owe me money, you silly man. I will kick you out, you lie, lie, lie. And he's, no, 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 I, I, I will pay you, I promise. No, no, no. It was like this comedy show, this political theater for our behalf. It got really bad, though, when he took one of these college fair trips um, where they were hosting this fair, connecting the college with the students in this hotel ballroom in Seoul, South Korea. And 
apparently he had to put his passport up and then he, they wouldn't give him the passport back unless he paid for the, everything. And somehow he kind of sweet-talked this woman into giving it back to him. And then he went back to Paris and she was calling and she was saying, you know, I vouched for him, I'm going to lose my job. And talking to all of us, we're in this cramped little space. It was underground. There was no light. It was a cave. It was like moist. The walls were sweating. And we were all just kids. And we were all just scared. And finally, he got on the phone. And he was awful. It was the worst thing I've ever seen. Now, I will never do business with you. Fuck you. Slamming the phone onto the desk. Fuck you. Fuck you. It's like, this, was, this is what it's like to, to actually be beholden to the devil. And think about it. The devil's not going to be somebody especially powerful. He's going to be a disappointment. And he's going to wrap everybody else up in his schemes. I decided I needed to figure out a way to get out and to get what was owed to me, because by that point, there was so much. And there were so many negotiations. He'd pay each month, and it wasn't the full amount, and I was supposed to keep track. And you know, I can't imagine what it's like for somebody who, I had a lifeline. At my worst case scenario, I could call mom and dad for help. I fucked up, give me some money. And they would have been happy to do it, but I can't imagine what it would be like for somebody in the same situation where they just have to just wait for somebody's generosity to pay them what's owed to them. So eventually what I did, I had this website I was making, these files that I was saving on the computer. And it's soon, when I finished the project, I deleted everything. And I put it all, I saved I copied it, and I saved it, I had floppy disks. And everybody was so encouraging. You know, they said, oh, don't forget the cookie folder. Get, I don't know what the cookies are, but delete those. <laughs> and when I was done, and I was shaking, and I went out for a glass of wine with the landlord. And, and people told the owner when he came back, apparently, you know, what I'd done and where I was. And he called the landlord, and... The landlord was yelling at him on the telephone, and the landlord kind of winked at me and said, we're going in. It was very late at this point. The office was empty. It was just the three of us, and it was incredibly tense. He was furious at me, and he had cash. He'd been to the ATM machine, and he was putting all the bills down, everything that I, I claimed he owed me. And I had the disks, and he had the bills, and we had this moment where we were both holding on to both of them. <laughs> And finally, each of us let go of what we no longer needed and took what we wanted and needed. And when I left that building and walked into the streets of Paris, it was beautiful. And it was like I was practically skipping. It was like I own this town. <laughs> and every year when I go back with my wife to visit her family, and we walk around Paris, and I just, I just love it so much. It's, it's my favorite city. I love it. Thank you. Next, Jeff Smith discovers that having a relatively common name can be a huge liability when crossing the border. Thank you. Yeah, <clears throat> so my name's Jeff Smith, and I'm guessing you know somebody named Jeff Smith. Uh, in my case, the first Jeff Smith I ever met was actually, when I started high school, my locker partner in 10th grade. His name was Jeff Smith, which kind of messed with me, right? Like, I'm starting this new high school, and, it, and it's a big high school, like thousands of kids, and I'm like, how am I going to make my way? How am I going to leave my mark? 
how am I going to create an identity, right? And then the first thing I see every morning is some dude shoving his books in my locker, and his name is Jeff Smith. And I'm like, what is this? This name is too generic. I didn't like it. What's it going to get me? And the first thing it really got me was a case of mistaken identity with a misbehaving Jeff Smith. And we were in school just barely five weeks. I get called down to the office, and they're like, why are you skipping class? Why are you not doing your homework? Uh, why are you getting all these D's and E's? And I'm, I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm attending. I'm doing homework. I'm, I'm, I'm being a good kid, you know? And uh, they're like, no, you're lying. Look at this schedule. Here's all your skip marks and everything. And I'm like, that's not my schedule. That's not me. That's the other Jeff Smith. And so over the years, I sort of came to suspect there's a lot of misbehaving Jeff Smiths out there because, you know, you see like a, a news item where we're getting like debtor calls, you know, and I'm like, no, it, it's, it's another, you know, Jeff Smith. And then this was really confirmed for me a little while ago when I was setting up some uh, Google alerts at work, and somehow I set up a Google alert for myself. This is like a a news feed, and every night it goes out searches for news. And so every morning I get this news feed, and my email says, Google alert, Jeff Smith. And I'm learning, like, there's Jeff Smith getting in knife fights. They're robbing banks. They're doing uh, election fraud. They're driving. There's Jeff Smith driving drunk, like, all over <laughs> this great nation. And, and it's kind of, like, disheartening, right? Like, 7.30 in the morning, I'm reading a news, you know, Jeff Smith of Rolling Meadows, Pennsylvania, uh, is arrested for stealing money from the middle school play ticket fund. And I'm like, dude, why are you besmirching the Jeff Smith brand with something as pathetic as that, right? So, you know, but generally these misbehaving Jeff Smiths, these misdemeanor Jeff Smiths, these felon Jeff Smiths, they don't cause me that much trouble, but there's a time and place where they do, and that is when I'm crossing the border, giving my passport to the man. Case in point, we're coming back from Paris a couple years ago, my wife and daughter and I, and we fly into LaGuardia, and there's like 30 custom booths there, right? And there's hundreds of people at every one. This place is so crowded, and we're inching our way to our guy, and I'm thinking, I wonder how this is going to go. And everybody thinks that, right? But I'm thinking it more than most because I know, as my Google alert has shown me, at any given time, there's like 40 or maybe 400 arrest warrants out there with my name on it. And so we get up there, and my daughter gets through, and my wife gets through, and I give the man my passport, and all of a sudden, he's paying really close attention to his screen. And I'm like, uh-oh. And then all of a sudden, he starts typing a lot. And I'm like, oh, man. And he starts reaching for the phone. And he looks at me and says, I got a federal warrant here for a Jeff Smith. <laughs> I'm like, OK. And he makes his call. I can't hear what he's saying. I'm thinking, of course, you know, that call is going to clear it up. But it doesn't. And he looks down, looks way down the line. And he goes like this. And I look down the line. And my wife and daughter look down the line. There's a uniformed gentleman coming my way. And uh, he gets to me, and he takes my arm, and he says, sir, you have to come with me. And I'm like, I am suddenly the most interesting thing in that entire place. <laughs> because, you know, like, that great mass of humanity is all on that side of the line, right? But on my side of the line, 
there's only me and the uniformed gentleman, and we're walking past everybody, and I want to go, I'm not the felon Jeff Smith, everybody. I'm the good Jeff Smith. I'm on the, I'm on the school board, and uh, I, I, grow, I grow a vegetable garden, you know? And uh, so, you know that device in literature where a door appears or no door had been? Well, that actually happened to me because we're walking this huge white wall, and all of a sudden, as we get close to it, I see there's a door I, I had not noticed. There's no sign on the door. This is the most anonymous door you've ever seen. It's just flush with the white wall. It's the color of the wall. You'd think maybe it's a broom closet, but you'd be wrong because this, uh, <laughs> this door was a portal to another world. This door is like the wardrobe of Narnia, but it's not, it's not a Narnia you want to be in. It's, it's detainee Narnia. So I go in there, and if you have any lingering doubts that there's racial profiling happening in airports, you just need to change your name to Jeff Smith and gain access to this room, because there's like 200 people in here. And every single one of them, everyone, is some shade of brown, right? Like Middle Eastern brown, African brown, South American brown, and one white guy, <laughs> Jeff Smith. <clears throat> so I figure I'm going to be in there like five minutes, but I'm not. I'm in there. I'm in there, and it gives me time to think Jeff Smith thoughts. Like I'm thinking, <laughs> what if your name is like the equivalent of Jeff Smith, like a really common men's name, but like in Pakistan or Iran or Iraq? And what if your name is showing up like 30 times on the terrorist watch list? Or take it a step further, what, remember that deck of cards George W. had, right? 52 guys we're going to hunt down and kill, remember that? What if your name's on that deck and what if a couple things line up, like your wife's name is the same as that guy's name, or you kind of look like him, you know? You're getting into detaining Narnia, but how are you getting out? I don't know. <laughs> so one dramatic thing happened when I was in there. This woman had flown in from Columbia, and they learned she had an arrest warrant for her back home. And I know this because I'm sitting up front, and all the agents, they're just sort of talking about everybody's problem, you know, <laughs> no, you know right out there. And so they're going to put her on a plane to go home, and they're going, should we put cuffs on her? And they seemed, like, weirdly sensitive. This seemed, like, really courteous somehow or something. And so they make some calls, and they get the call back, like, we got to cuff her. Okay, so they start walking over to her, and I was kind of puzzled about this. And then I soon see why. The minute they put the cuffs on her, she just loses it. And she starts sobbing and sobbing, and she can't stop, and she's just sobbing. And everybody turns away, right? No one's looking at her. But I don't turn away. I just keep looking at her. And I watch the TSA lady talk to her. Because, you know, this crazy name of mine, this generic name, like, gave me this. Like, it's not fun, you know, or whatever. But it's something rich and telling me something about life. And I, I wasn't going to turn away. So I did. Shortly after that, I got, I got out of there. Jeff Smith was free, right? So <laughs> final scene. Three months later, I'm up in Canada kayaking Lake Superior. I'm coming back, coming over that big bridge by the Sioux coming up to the booth, you know what's on my mind, right? So <laughs> give the man our passport. Wait for it. Which one of you is Jeff Smith? <laughs> I'm in the back seat on the other side. He's staring in at me. Says, I got a federal warrant here for a Jeff Smith. And I'm like, <clears throat> I want to go, of course you do. Those, those things are like a dime a dozen. <laughs> so... 
So he's like, he goes, take off your sunglasses. I'm like, okay. And he's peering in at me, looking at my face. He goes, what color are your eyes? And I'm like, gray. <laughs> and, he, and he looks at his screen and he says, this Jeff Smith's eyes are blue. Go on through. <laughs> A trip to Toronto, Daniel Stewart tells us in this next story, changed his self-perception as a city person. Um, so we arrive in Toronto, and it's just turned evening, and twilight is a really good time to be introduced to a new city because the streets are pretty quiet, and the light is good, and everything looks really beautiful. And we're staying in this town. We, we've... we've uh, reserved an apartment in this in this neighborhood called Cabbage Town for the week, and you know we have no difficulty finding it. We go and park behind it, and we move all of our stuff up into into the apartment, and then we just sort of want to get out on the streets, you know. So we go and we're one one block away from Young Street. So we go out to Young Street. We take a left, and oh look, there's a coffee shop, so we can get you know some coffee for the week. And we walk into the coffee place, and the barista is really friendly, and we're, we're visitors. He's like, oh, welcome to Toronto. And we're chatting with him, you know, as, as he's grinding the coffee. And as we're chatting, this guy, comes out, this guy comes in, and for some reason, he's like carrying, he's carrying crutches, you know, two crutches. And he comes in, and he's like going over to the food, and he picks up a couple of sandwiches. And then he just runs out the door. And I had this flash of just gratitude at how great it feels to be back in the city. <laughs> you know, we're in, we're in Toronto because it was, my turn to, it was my turn to choose the destination. Because when my wife chooses, she tends to choose really quiet places like the UP. Because she says she wants to go someplace and get away from it all. Now, we live in northern Leelanau County. You know, it's, it's an old farmhouse. We have a barn. And like, a few, like three weeks ago, I took a picture of a bobcat running through our yard. So I'm pretty sure that wherever it is, we're already pretty far away from it. So when, when it's my turn to make a choice, we go to cities. And this time it's Toronto. <laughs> and planning, planning. Now, we lived, before we came to Michigan, we lived for 14 years in Center City, Philadelphia. So I have this idea that I, that I have this sort of inner urban exile that I want to liberate occasionally. You know, I want to be in one of those places where you walk out the door of the building, you go to the intersection, left, right, straight, anything can happen. And that's sort of the way we plan, you know, our visits to the city. It's not like we have particular things we want to do. We, we visit cities and we do things the way we did when we lived in a city and had a day off. So we sort of just go to a neighborhood that looks interesting and we figure out what's going on. And, of course, Toronto has, you know, numberless neighborhoods. So we're going to visit Koreatown. We're going to visit Chinatown. We're going to visit the open-air markets. When we see this neighborhood that's called West Queen West... We want to visit it just because that sounds redundant, you know? <laughs> you know? And we do things in these neighborhoods that you can really only do in cities. Like, when you go to a Chinese restaurant, you don't have to go to a Chinese restaurant that serves all Chinese food. You go to a restaurant that serves only dumplings. 
You know, they have like a hundred different kinds of dumplings because in a city it is possible for a restaurant to exist where dumplings are a way of life. (laughs) But after a couple of days in the city, this thing keeps happening and it begins to click with me that it is sort of a pattern. Um, Because we're chatting with people, you know, and these are the people who talk to visitors, you know, so they're, you know, they're clerks, you know, at the department stores where we're buying, you know, a notebook or at the place where, at the grocery store where we're buying some groceries. And um, we chat with them. And the common point is that first, every single person we talked to was not born in Toronto. Um, I was sort of expecting this because I read that 50% of the population of Toronto was not Toronto born. So they've all come to the city. And the second thing that strike that happens in these conversations is that you know th- you know we're talking with them and they say oh where are you from when we say we're visitors and i describe where we're from you know i, I like it's like wilderness you know a farmhouse circled by predators you know <laughs> <clears throat> and sort of no matter how i describe it the reaction and i mean every single time every single person we talk to has this reaction they all say some variation of, oh, that's the kind of place where I'd love to live. other thing that I notice is that I'm actually having a little difficulty like maneuvering on the sidewalks. And I don't mean just because they're crowded, although they are really crowded. I mean, Toronto is an exceptionally busy city. But the reason I'm having trouble maneuvering on the sidewalks is that I'm like noticing everybody that I'm walking past. Because, you know, we have these faces and the way we move. I mean, we give out so much information into the world. So I'm walking, just sort of trying to walk down the block, and there's this young guy, and he's, like, really interested in being tough. He doesn't understand how vulnerable that makes you in the world. You know, people can make you try to do things to prove you're tough. And, oh, this woman who looks, she's probably around 40-ish, she's going to a job that she looks like she's hated for a long time. And all of that information is getting to me, and it's sort of, it's becoming really tiring. And I realize, well, oh, it's because I've lost that thing that everybody who's lived in a city knows exactly the thing I'm talking about, which goes by a lot of different names. You know, some people call it armor, some people call it callous. It's this sort of uh, layer that when you live in a city, you build around yourself. You know, because uh, who we are doesn't, you know, end with our skin, obviously. It sort of extends into the world. And how close you are to people is literally how close you are to people in the world. You know, they're strangers, your close friends, your lovers who are right next to you. But you can't do that in the city. People are touching you all the time. So that sort of, that's part of you that reaches into the world, you end up wrapping it in close to yourself to protect yourself and to make yourself a little bit numb. And I've lost that by living in a small town where I just look at people and I'm really interested in looking at all these people. Because, I mean, all of you looking at me now, I can tell these, I can see these little ends of stories that are trailing around everybody. 
And it makes me think about the cost of living in a city and how it's not just financial. Because we're visiting Toronto roughly 10 years since the last time we actually lived in a city. And the last morning I was a city resident was the morning we were moving out. And, you know, I woke up that morning and it was going to be a really busy day because we had so much stuff to do. We'd been packing for weeks. And the first thing I had to do was I had to go and get the truck that we had rented to pack and get our stuff into. And I wanted to be there as soon as the place opened. It was about a half an hour walk away into South Philly, you know, on this, on this big commercial on this big commercial road. So I left about a half an hour early, and I'm totally preoccupied with my to-do list. I'm sure I'm going to forget something as I'm walking there. And half an hour later, roughly, I'm standing across the street from this rental place. You know, I'm going to get this giant truck. I'm concerned about the little roads, you know, the little streets in the the old part of Philadelphia where we live. Well, what I don't realize as I'm waiting there at this corner, I'm looking at the traffic, I'm looking at the light, And I'm looking at my watch because I'm wondering if I've timed it right. What I don't realize is I'm about 10 feet away from a person. Uh, Part of this is because this is early October and it's in the morning, so the shadows are deep, and she's sort of in the shadows. But I don't notice her until she speaks as I'm looking at my watch. And I hear this voice, and it's really soft, but it's clear. And it says, Baby. You've got the time. And this is untrue in every possible way. But the way I react to being solicited at 8 8 (laughs) a.m. is is actually the way that I react because by then I've lived for 14 years in the city. I mean, she doesn't need my pity. A working girl doesn't need anything from me. But maybe an acknowledgement of humanity would be nice, but that's beyond me because of my layer, my armor. So what do I do? I do what most people do in the city. I treat her like she doesn't exist. I figure, in the back of my mind, because I do feel a little bad about it, I try not to think about it, but I figure, well, she's used to it. And it's not just because she's a working girl. It's because we're all used to it, because we live in the city. And when I'm driving the truck and t- taking the turn onto our block, we live about halfway down the block. You know, I'm t- taking this big turn. And there's this guy there that I recognize. He lives in the place on the corner. And I recognize him, even though I've never, never spoken with him in nine years. And he's waving. He's, he must have heard that we're moving. And now he's come out to sort of wish us goodbye. And I'm really touched until I hear the crack of the wood. And I realize that I've run into the branch of this tree (laughs) that apparently means a lot to this man. And I guess he wasn't waving because his arm is still moving and he is definitely not saying bon voyage. And as we're pulling out, about eight hours later, with the truck full, I'm aware of 
how everything that we're leaving behind, this apartment, our jobs, the places we shopped, all of it is sort of vanishing as we're leaving. And I remember this time when I was a kid. I must have been a little kid. And maybe I was in a swimming pool. Maybe I was in a bathtub. You know, and I was, and I had this idea that I would try to make a hole in the water, like you do with dirt. And so I tried to dig the hole in the water, you know? And of course, all you end up with is a few ripples. And I had that sense that this is exactly what was happening to the life that I had been living for 14 years in this city. It was all vanishing when I was a mile into this 900-mile trip to Michigan. And in Toronto, as I'm noticing all these people, I'm realizing that I live in a place where people sort of notice me. Where we notice each other, and I hear about people that I've never met who are gone. And people still talk about them. And I get that sense that, you know, for all of the drawbacks, it is no utopia to live in a small town. There is that sense that when you dig your hole, even after you're gone, there'll be something left behind. We're still going to travel. We're heading back to Philadelphia later this year at some point. We haven't made our, our plans in any way final yet. But I already know what's going to happen at the very end of that trip. At the very end of that trip, whatever else happens, we're going to be driving up this two-track gravel driveway. And we're going to stop at the flat spot in between the house and the barn. And when I turn off the car, and when I get out of it, I'm going to be home. Thank you. In the last story of this show, Anne Bonney tells of how a trip to build morale for troops stationed in Iraq changed her outlook on what it means to serve others. Spring 2009, Brian Offit casually came up to me in the hallway. I was headed to a meeting or something, and I thought he was going to ask about my weekend. And he said, hey, do you want to go to Iraq to do a morale-building tour for the troops? About a week later, I learned it was a group called the Warrior Tours who was going to take me, some running race organizers, and a band named Catchpenny to Iraq for a week to do some 5K races and post-race concerts for the troops. Um, I was, Under Armour was sponsoring, and I was going to be the brand representative, and so I got to give away free product and uh, help execute the events. On the way over there, I was talking to one of the band members who had been on a, a tour like this before, and I learned that it wasn't just a rah-rah, thank-you, slice-a-home kind of tour. Trips like these were organized to slow the frightening increase in suicides that were ha plaguing our American military in Iraq and Afghanistan. And suddenly, the 1,200 men and women that we were going to interact with came into stark focus in my mind. We weren't just going to bring some fun and thanks to people who deserved it. We might be saving somebody's life. So at about 9 or 10 that night, we landed at Camp Taji, which is a large American support base about an hour north of Baghdad. I was talking to John, a skinny, tired-looking kid in the mess hall, and he told me how life on a support base is like Groundhog Day. You do the same thing every day. You do the same job with the same people traveling the same road, wearing the same clothes. 
your whole deployment. And not only that, everything's the same color. Everything's brown, the color of sand. The buildings, the trucks, the uniforms, the helmets, the, all the gear, everything is brown. So as I was telling him some details about the races and the concerts that we were going to put on the next day, his eyes lit up. John was going to bring a bunch of his friends. They'd been looking forward to it for about three weeks since they found out we were coming. 5 a.m. the next day, wiping sleep from our eyes, we got to work. Just like races in the U.S., we had big start-finish line banners. We had timing mats. We had race numbers. We had um, a photographer. The bunch of races back in the States had donated race shirts and medals. And uh, we had goodie bags with energy bars and free athletic gear and a little card where the guys could go and the girls could go and find out their race results and download their free race photos. Um, so about two hours before the race started, John and this sad-looking, quiet, big guy show up. And John said he was too excited to sleep, so he woke up his roommate, Drew, and dragged him along to see if we needed any help. And we were happy for the help. In fact, it became essential because they knew where to find all the stuff that we now realized that we needed, like power and tables and coolers and flats of water. We were having a hard time hanging the banners because we didn't realize the sand would render the duct tape that we were planning to use completely useless. And so Drew sl silently slipped away and five minutes later came and thrust his fat fist in my face. And in it were a bunch of sand-colored zip ties that were the perfect solution for our banner problem. And Drew brightened considerably. More runners continued to show up in their gray army workout gear, ready to run, but a little early, so we put them to work too. And soon we had over a dozen men and women organizing race shirts by size and hanging medals for easy distribution. They were working really hard, but they were clearly happy to be doing something different. 200 or so runners showed up at the starting line. We sang the national anthem. The base commander said some encouraging words, and we were ready to go. Now, at a usual American race, they would fire a starting gun with a loud bang, and the race would start. But considering we were in a war zone, the army requested we use an air horn. <laughs> and we didn't realize that our air horn was damaged on the way over, and so with an unsatisfyingly lame honk, our race <laughs> kicked off. <laughs> A lot of the soldiers were very fit, and so they ran off hoping to win the race, and then others clearly hadn't run very much, and so they were huffing and puffing and sweating profusely. Some even stopped halfway for a cigarette break. <laughs> so I was having a great time running back and forth, talking to the soldiers and cheering them on and getting to know them. Towards the end of the race, I came across two young men in full brown camo utility uniforms, so full sleeves, full pant legs, boots, um, they, they were suffering in the heat, and they smelled like low tide. You know, they were young and fit, but they were, in, they were in some pain, and they were looked really tired, but they finished strong, holding each other's hands above their heads as they crossed the finish line. The post-race party was like a good old American barbecue. The smell of burgers filled the air, and the concert or the band played great music that we all sang along to, like Pour Some Sugar on Me and Living on a Prayer. They wore their medals and ate and laughed and sang and talked about back home. I approached the two young men in their full utility uniforms, and turns out they had just gotten back from Fallujah that morning. They 
were wearing their boots and utes because they didn't have any other clothes with them. They were waiting for transport back to their own base that afternoon. That morning, about six hours before, they had been in their heavy helmets and their loaded weapons with bullets whizzing by their heads. And now they were sitting eating burgers, bumming cigarettes, and giving each other shit like any other 20-year-old. It was really easy to forget that we were in the middle of a war until it wasn't. We put on the same event the next day at another base and the third the next day. And we were all really excited because we had reached about 650 men and women. And we saw the same excitement and joy and stress release with each group that we worked with. And we were hitting our stride and we were feeling really good. And then it all came to a standstill. The wind kicked up and put all that fine sand in the air. If you extended your hand, your arm, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, and you had to put a cloth over your face to breathe. All the trucks traveled at a snail's pace in order to be safe, and all the planes were grounded. Nobody left the base for any missions, to go on leave, or to go home. And we sat there doing nothing for three days, waiting for the sand to stop. And when it finally did, it's time for us to go home. We did everything we could to try to pick up our tour where we had left off and get to the other three bases, but you know, with all the logistics and details of running a war, it just wasn't possible. And we were all pretty frustrated as we ate our last meal in the mess hall, sitting there, eating slowly, heads hung low, not saying anything. We hadn't gotten to help the other people that we wanted to and we felt like we had failed. There were 600 other, and probably more than that, men and women who were expecting us to come and who were looking forward to it and who were now let down and disappointed because Iraq had taken one more thing from them. They were expecting us. Some were probably needing us, and we didn't show up. What if that pushed somebody over the edge? What if they gave up? And then I thought about John and Drew and his fat fist in my face with those sand-colored zip ties. And I thought about all the men and women who helped us set up the races. And I thought about my two young soldiers just back from Fallujah and all the guys and girls we'd sat around with doing nothing for three days. And I thought of a story of a little boy walking down the beach. He came across thousands of starfish washed up on the shore, drying out in the sun. And so he started picking them up and throwing them back in the water, one at a time. And as he's walking down the beach, an old man approached him and said, what are you doing? There's tens of thousands of starfish washed on the beach. You're never going to get them all. You're never going to make a difference. And the little boy picked up another starfish, and he looked at it. And he threw it in the water, and with a plunk, it disappeared back where it belonged. And he said, I made a difference for that one. When I got back, I got this tattoo of a starfish on my wrist. It reminds me of the amazing adventure we had in the, in the desert. It reminds me of John and Drew and all the 650 soldiers that we ran and celebrated with. But mostly, it reminds me to be present and make the most of every moment that I'm in. 
because you never know the invisible struggle that might be happening right in front of you. And just being there could make the difference in somebody's life. Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to Mike Kurtz and Inside Out Gallery. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.